0: If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to consider a a great truth, not necessarily, that's the key word, not necessarily an Easter passage. We'll put it up on the screen in a few minutes. and We're going to consider a great truth today that I hope will be received, and as James talks about, that would be implanted in hearts today. When you got up, you looked at your phone, your clock, your watch, your calendar, and you saw 2015. And I ask you this morning, 2015 from what? 2015 years from the most influential person who's ever lived. Uh, With all due respect to a rapper from the 305, it is Jesus who is Mr. Worldwide. And today, people gather to celebrate, to worship, and to honor him. Charismatics. Are shouting about it. Pentecostals are dancing about it. Baptists are forming committees and voting over it. <laughs> Presbyterians are studying it and taking notes. Episcopalians are toasting it. And some of you are thinking, tell me more about the Episcopalians <laughs> and where are their services? The influence of this man, the vision of his life, the vision for life that Jesus presented still challenges and haunts humanity. His influence uh, is unparalleled. It's unquestioned that it's unparalleled. His influence in government, in art, in science, in medicine, in education. His teaching like no other. He taught and as he taught, some were delighted and some were infuriated, but all were astonished. Jesus, as you know, uh, history tells us, came into humble beginnings. He was a born in a manger in a stable and raised by obscure, impoverished parents. He was raised by a blue-collar family. He worked as a carpenter. And the last three years of his life, he lived a fulfilling life as an itinerant missionary, uh, as a homeless rabbi. He had humble beginnings and he had what seemed to be, and it's why we're here today. It's why uh, more people gather, more churches around the world on this day than any other. Uh, He appeared to have not just a humble beginning, but a hopeless ending. History tells us when a man or woman, a great man or woman dies, that you can tell if their legacy will outlast their life. You can tell that at their death. Alexander the Great, Caesar Augustus... Constantine, Napoleon, Socrates, Mohammed all had um, immense reputations. Many of them had military right at their disposal when they died. But when Jesus died, you know, a cruel, barbaric execution with a tiny band of followers. And when I was a youngster growing up in Sunday school in the church in which I was raised, I thought these guys uh, and their associates had it together, for they had been with Jesus. But they were scared. They were frightened and by all accounts, by every appearance, it looked like that this movement, it would end. A hopeless ending. History tells us that two of these guys were fishermen. And they appeared, these frightened souls, they appeared before the Sanhedrin. If you know anything about the Sanhedrin, that's the intellectual elite of the day, the intelligentsia. That would be like two parking lot attendants being questioned on quantum physics by some MIT professors. But it was the MIT professors on this day that were bewildered by it. And scripture tells us and history corroborates that these men were unschooled and they were ordinary. But they had been with Jesus. And I tell you, as a minister, as a pastor, as a parent, as a friend, as a son, my mom is here today. Welcome, mom. She just drove here. It's our first time to get acquainted in many weeks. Still proud? Yes. Yes. She didn't hesitate. Don't you love that? Mama. <laughs> Moms will always love you, though. You got, everybody's got their mom in their corner, pretty much. But uh, G- they had been with Jesus as a, as, a, as a leader, as a pastor, as a friend. What, what greater accomplishment can be said about me? What, what greater thing can be said about you? When I read the gospel stories, I realize I'm called into something higher, to a a grander purpose, to a wider vision, to a a more expansive dream that can become a reality in my life. And the most important thing is not so much am I extraordinary or how I am educated. Both can be important. And as I study that scripture in Acts, they they were unschooled and they were ordinary. I think we can read a lot into ordinary. We have to be careful with unschooled because God uses schooled people too, right? He does. Look at the Apostle Paul. God uses schooled and he uses unschooled. And we all fall into this just ordinary category. But these men, it says, the fishermen, the tax collectors, this odd assortment of cast of characters, they had been with Jesus. And this morning, we won't be long in here, but I do want to call you to this great passage of Scripture about what one of these guys would say later about Jesus and the call on everyone who would follow Jesus. It goes like this. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul is saying that Jesus lived differently. He lived differently. He lived in opposition to Roman rule. They were wanting someone to militarily take power, to take over, to usher in a new kingdom in which they would get to rule and reign. But Jesus led differently. Now, we're all called into a battle. I don't want to assume an adversarial position. I want to be careful in what we take a stance on today. But we're called to live. This, this life is a battle. Do you believe that? I, 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 y'all know I do a, a bunch of weddings We're starting to do weddings here. And and I tell young couples, Laura and I both, we tell young couples, "Your, your marriage is not going to be lived out on a romantic balcony. It's going to be lived out on a battlefield. Do you believe that? And so is your journey. So is your spiritual life. My heart was saddened as news broke in the reservoir community of someone who died. A leader who Maybe he had taken his life, uh, not all the details emerged, but a, a good man and by all accounts a godly Christian man. And when a good friend of his texted me yesterday, he said he was one of my best friends. And we had a quick rapid fire text exchange. And what he said back to me was profound we're all fighting battles. But the weapons of our warfare, Jesus taught. By the vision of his life, by the influence that he gave, by his very teachings, the weapons of our warfare, Paul would say, are not of the flesh. The NIV, NIV, translate that, on the contrary. We don't fight with weapons like the world fights with, but on the contrary, God has given us divine power. Circle that word, power, for a moment. And on Easter Sunday, let's consider this word that's so important. I mean, we love power, don't we? We like the power position. We like to have lunch with power brokers. We drink power aid and eat Power Bars. We're all about some power. We go to Smoothie King and add some power punch to our already 1,000-calorie smoothie, right? We're we're about some power. And I'm convinced that if a power broker comes into our church... That he or she ought to be treated like everybody else. And James would say, the half brother Jesus, no preferential treatment, no chief seat in the synagogue, no, no special treatment. And power with Jesus is very different. You see, this band, this motley crew, not the rock band Motley Crew, but this, yeah, this band of disciples who were so timid and were confused. And at a loss, something started. It's what I love about Christianity. As I've through the years studied it and put it under a microscope, emotionally, mentally, intellectually. It's what I love about Christianity, you see, because it has a starting point. You see, Saturday, there was no movement. But on Sunday, it began. And these men, these women, and women were first to go to the tomb. And these folks formed into a community. They would gather and they rearranged their lives differently. They prayed. They served. They ate together. It said when they got together in circles that they would do so with gladness and sincerity. They kept it real long before keeping it real was in the vernacular. They they kept it real with their sincerity and their gladness of heart. When a need arose in their community, they went and met that need. And at that time, when the poorest of the poorest could not afford a burial, a funeral. They, in fact, history tells us the poorest of the poor tried to form these uh, associations where they would pitch in and they could have some type of decent burial. But there was fraud. Imagine that. Fraud involved in altruistic effort. But the Christians were those who would run and minister to the poorest of the poor. And Jesus and his community turned the word power upside down because the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They're not like the world. On the contrary. And these men and women, as they gathered and formed these communities, they they started calling each other brothers and sisters. Y'all grew up in a church like that? Brother so-and-so? Sister so-and-so? Honestly, in 2015, I kind of want to run from that. Right? Don't call me brother. But I look at the early church, and I think, you know, what for... Us in the South, in America, the last several decades has been kind of a ritual or a habit. For them was something of deep meaning. And when they called each other brothers and sisters, the Romans accused them of incest. And when they took communion, when they celebrated the blood of Christ being shed and the body of Christ being broken, they were accused of cannibalism. When the early church was persecuted, they scattered, but they saw it as a summons To spread the word with boldness. That was the church. That was the first church then. But later by the 4th century something changed. You see the greatest threat for so long to the church was suffering. But then suddenly it became success. And by the 4th century wealth was flowing in. Persecution had ceased. Romans had accepted Christianity. Christianity became the law of the land. Isn't that great? But then, the persecuted became the persecutors. Every time, hear me out. Give me a chance to say this. Don't overhear what I'm saying. But every time we politic and lobby and organize, every time we flex our muscle and try to make threats and impose our way, People turn away. There's something different for our weapons. Our weapons of warfare, are not of the flesh. But on the contrary, there's a different kind of power. Peter was among those disciples. He was among the first. Here's what he said in 1 Peter. We're just going to put it up on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? Say it, church. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by, by God, say it, church, by God's what? Power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Woo. You can do that on Easter only. Only one person. That's something to say, woo, about. And here we see that power, but we see a different power Peter is talking about. And something happened in this early church that subverted that was scandalous that was liberating and freeing but radically different we spend so much time don't we today church trying to be cool hip relevant and trendy and the church by all accounts the first church spent no time trying to do that they lived counterculturally and peter would agree with paul in saying that the power it's in the resurrection of jesus Now, a lot of church leaders, a lot of ministers around the globe are having their people turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I won't have you do that today, but millions are, I'm sure. And in there, Paul gives us, talking about this resurrection that Peter talked about. He gives us some evidences for the resurrection, which I find to be very compelling and I would love any seeker, anyone here today that's open to faith but not sure, that's not convinced that has a lot of questions and, and intellectual doubts, to consider some of the writings of E.F. Bruce and N.T. Wright and Tim Muehlhoff and Rodney Starks and Ken Bailey and Bruce Shelley, some great writers of history that talk about the biblical accounts of the resurrection and corresponding historical evidence. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us three. He says there's an empty tomb. There's eyewitness accounts and there's fulfilled prophecy. Now, when a lawyer, and God help us Founder Church has a bunch of lawyers. I don't know what that I don't know what that says for us. We got a couple of them in the choir. But we got some lawyers up in this church, but when a lawyer stands up, when that man or woman stands up in court, they want to tip the scales of the verdict in their favor. They will use com- Compelling witnesses, they'll use professional testimony, they'll use piles of evidence, whatever it takes to marshal that evidence, and not just one piece, they want a multiplicity of evidence to be brought to bear. And Paul is saying, there's there's an empty tomb. Now listen to me for a second. Do you realize that the easiest thing Jesus' enemies could have done on that day is to is to prove, is to show a body. But they did not, for they could not. And they controlled. They controlled government. They controlled politics. They controlled the flow of information. There was a gathering of, of the Romans at the gate, at the, at the guard. They guarded the, the front door of the tomb. Sure, they were wearing skirts and sandals and had slingshots, that we'll see tonight on CNN or NBC, rather. But they, they were there, but they were no match. An empty or a body could have been shown to disprove it all, but it was not. And Paul goes on to say there were eyewitness accounts. How many? 500. Ever historical count corroborates what the Scripture teaches. That's a whole lot of people. I always loved the story about some young guys I knew. Growing up, they were teenagers, and one of them got their driver's license. And they skipped out on school. They skipped out on a test. They came late. They were trying to get the answers from somebody. This is old school. Kids don't do it anymore, right? And they showed up at class, and the teacher was perturbed with them. And she said, okay, you are taking the test. And all four boys had to sit down in this classroom under her supervision in four different corners. And she said, you got one question on this test. And write it down. Are you ready? Which tire was flat? Now, how are they going to do with that, right? You see, when you get more than a few people lying... It usually doesn't bode well, does it? It doesn't bode well. There were eyewitness accounts, and when Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians, many of them, most of them, were still alive. He was naming people that were living and moving and having their being. It's difficult to pull off a good lie. Did you do anything? Did you punk anybody on April Fool's Wednesday? I did, but we got that guy. God led us to lie to Gary. He was at lunch with uh, Nick Crawford, and he called his work associate Ben Sims. I mean, by all accounts, we punked him good. We told him that Dooling Hall had flooded, and we were going to have to look for another place for Fondren Covered. He was already calling tent companies and asking about the green and trying to—he was, he was working it to, to work his plan B, but we punked him. But even that took— a seriousness, right? I mean, Jeff and Will and I, we had to make sure. We had to square up our shoulders and make sure everybody knew their plan. I had to call Mike Peters, who uh, runs the property over here. We had to get, put people in on our scheme, in on our dream. It was a noble one. And it worked. We fooled him. But it's really hard to pull something like this off. For every doubter, every believer, every skeptic, I would ask, why would these people be motivated to lie? Oh, I get it. I get it. Many, many a time, there's a social organization that uses religion to coerce people in order to consolidate power. But did any of these followers of Jesus have power or prestige? One will look at Fox's book of martyrs will teach you that power and prestige is not what they were after. If that was their motivation, I mean, there are some good reasons we're, that were tempted to lie, right? They good to lie, but there's some reasons that you're tempted. It could bode well for you, but how could this bode well? There was an empty tomb. There were eyewitness accounts, and there was fulfilled prophecy. In 1 Corinthians 15, it, it says, Paul says, according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, according to the Scriptures, as he gives detail, according to the Scriptures, over 300 prophecies were fulfilled in the person of Jesus with precision with detail with clarity backing up to what Peter said to this passage we had up, you see three great benefits that you and I have it, it's, it's news you see the resurrection is news that we can use anybody read US News and World Report they have a section called news you can use and sometimes it's just easy to go to that right because we want stuff that's that's relevant to our lives and the resurrection rings with relevance for everyone who would put their faith in Jesus. And Peter says what? He says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9, the passage we just looked at, he said that we have we can find in the resurrection power, great mercy. We can find great mercy. To the person whose life is hidden with Christ in God, I want to tell you that you're forgiven. You're forgiven. And Jesus forgives. Let me break it down for you. He forgives fully. He forgives freely. He forgives forever. There's no more condemnation. Romans 8, Paul says. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God found in Christ. That is full forgiveness. It's free forgiveness. Do not think for a second that you can earn it. It's given to you freely. And for everyone who tries the exercise and futility of earning God's favor, can I say just stop? You're working for something that's already there. Stop and rest and find the Savior's love for you. It's common in our day especially to see a political figure or even a pastor or someone really important get caught up in a scandal, some web of deceit, some lie, some moral failure And they will have a press conference. And they usually say something along these lines. They'll say, I made a mistake, but I'm a good person. And I want to say this morning, everybody ought to go and you ought to think of this on your own. But I want to say Christianity gives a different alternative. And I would love for you to consider. Because Christianity says that you and I, yes, me, we are fundamentally flawed. And we've got something in us that we cannot fix ourselves. God, there were, you know, there were 600 commandments back then, back in the day. Who wants to live with that? Who wants to live with the weight of 600 commandments? But God brought it together and he said, here's 10 that really matter, but look at those 10 and see which ones you break. No other gods before me. Can I ask you, have you broken that? Are there any idols? Is there anything that you elevate above God in your life? Honor your mother and your father. Mom, have I ever broken that? Never. There we go. I love this woman. But some of you have, right? Some of you have broken that. But along with that, do you always respect authority? Do you believe that God can even work through imperfect people and that your job many times is to submit to, to that earthly higher power? Do you ever violate that? What about honoring the Sabbath? Do you honor God with Sabbath? Do you take a day off? Do you rest and find your rest in Him? Do you honor God with not just your rest, but your talent and your treasure? Do you give? Do you live a generous life? Uh, you're, some of you are thinking, man, get to murder. Get to do not murder. I, I got that one so far. Do not murder. And Jesus destroyed that when He came in Matthew chapter 5. He says, if you're even angry towards someone, Even anger, something you hold in your heart that you harbor towards someone. That you've already violated that. I just want to say to some of us who are smug and self-righteous. I'm just looking at all of you now, okay? Nobody in particular. Just looking at the whole congregation. But to any of us that feel self-righteous today, can I say that on your best days. On your best days, your sin separates you from God. Because He is perfectly holy. Even your best days, even when, man, even when you're reading my utmost for his highest and you're learning to play uh, Matt Redman songs on the acoustic guitar, right? Even, even when you connect to a small group, even, though, even those great days when you're doing all the things right, you fall short. And Romans 3 tells us for all of sins, it affects every one of us. And if you read Romans 1, it says it affects every part of us. It's corrosive. Sin diminishes us. And Peter's saying the resurrection power gives us great mercy. Can I say that if your life, again, is hidden with Christ and God, you are forgiven freely. You are forgiven fully. You are forgiven forever. Don't think today that you have to live and defeat. The resurrection says for you today and henceforth that God is not a God who forgave all the stuff you've done in the past but has no cleansing, healing power to work in your present or in your future his forgiveness it covers all he gives great mercy he gives a new birth think of peter who wrote this in 1 peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 9 think of the disciples when that moment occurred when friday happened And they, when Jesus was arrested, do you know the account? What did the disciples do? They ran. They were scared like like school children. They hid. And not only did they hide, Peter denied that he ever knew or followed Jesus. In fact, not only did he deny it, he denied it three times. And a couple of months later the women were first at the tomb the women were the first to announce hearts burned when jesus was resurrection and showed up again in such a nondescript way but those disciples they they waited and how cool is this if you think that you're too low today if you think that god can't use you i met with someone this week who said man my life disqualified I could never do what you do. I could never be a minister of the gospel because of this in my life. And Peter, who not only hid and denied, who denied Jesus multiple times, was the very guy that was chosen to preach the great inaugural sermon. Same city, same mob same crowd and a new birth this language written so long ago completely intersects with one of the big questions of your heart today you see it all around you oprah winfrey talks about it all the time can can a person really change let me be real for a second if you're young just hear me out just nod you're probably not going to you're not going to experience this yet but when you get my age, there's just a lot of people in this room and all around the world who just, the answer to that question is a really cynical one. Do people really change? We pray not only for baptisms, we pray for stories of life change. I believe I'm one of them. I believe when I read about what Peter wrote, though I haven't suffered like the first Christians by any stretch of the imagination. I believe God brings great joy. God is is not tangible, He's not visible, He's not audible, but I believe in Him, I experience Him. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and He brings great joy. It is inexpressible, it is full of glory. He can change. The Easter story tells us that the brave, that the cowards became brave, that the skeptical became believers, that people that were abusive like Paul, if you ever struggle with grace, look at the life of Paul. You ever seen someone abuse, torture, kill, and you think what you ought to think? You think, how can someone do that? And you know what God can do? In a man named Saul, he can take that person, and His great mercy can give him a new birth. And He can use them. He can use them. He gives us great mercy, Peter says. He gives us a new birth and He gives us living hope. Years ago, I remember being a part of a church where I was on a teaching team. And I had to write small group curriculum. And I got to preach two of the sermons at this church. And it was the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross one of the things he said, Jesus said from the cross was, woman, behold your son. He said, I'm thirsty. He said, it is finished. He said several things from the cross that day. He, with arms stretched out wide by coercion, but yet willingly in his heart, he said, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. Here's what I want to say to you today as we begin to close, that faith in Jesus receiving this resurrection power, receiving His mercy, getting a new birth, seeing God work in your life to bring credible, substantive change. There's a letting go to this faith. A letting go. Jesus let go of riches. He let go of earth to come to heaven. He let go of honor and power and glory. He let go of who He was at the Father's side To buy back your pardon. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins. According to his great mercy which the Father has lavished upon us. Ephesians 1.7. Lavished upon us. That word means over the top, abundant, extraordinary, plentiful. And that's the Father's love. Remember the show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? Robin Leach, I'm yelling and I don't know why. And he was so excited about big, masterful homes. This was long before HGTV came out and showed us and MTV Cribs and all that. And he would show us these extravagant, lavish homes. And the viewer was left in their modest home, not feeling so good about themselves. And Robin Leach is yelling at you about how lavish the home is. And that's God's grace and mercy in your life. And it will give you this great mercy. It'll give you a new birth. And it can give you a living hope if you're willing to let go of what you're hoping in. You ever go bowling? You ever watch people after they bowl? I don't bowl because there's too many germs in the ball. But uh, if you let, if you, that's one of my phobias, y'all pray for me. But if you, if you watch someone bowling, what do they do when they let go of the ball? They talk to me. They, they talk to it, don't they? They threaten it. They make promises to it, right? They hop, hop on one foot. They contort their bodies. They, they wave at it. They're saying things to the bowling ball as it goes down, hopefully toward some of those pins. They've let go of the ball, but in a weird way, they're talking to it as if they still have control over something that is no longer in their hands. And when Jesus says. Into your hands I commend my spirit. He was not just saving you. He was teaching you to trust. And today my prayer for our church is. As we move into whatever future God has for us. Is that we would see people let go of their addictions. Of the guilt that they carry. Of their ego and their pride and their attachments. Do you know that the journey from beginning to end is a journey of God wanting you to let go. To have this living hope, you must let go of what you're putting your hope in. For Abraham, it was the hope of of a familiar place. Let go of everything that you know that's familiar. Could it be today that God's calling some of you to let go of everything that you know that is familiar in your life in order to follow him? Let go, Abraham, of everything you know. To the rich young ruler, let go of money, possessions, and attachments of your heart. Let it all go. To the woman caught in adultery amidst the religious people, he said, let go of that relationship that doesn't honor me. And in so doing, in the letting go, God brings us this great mercy, this new birth, and this living hope. I believe after forty years of living that I have some testimonies, including my own, of how God brings change. Can a person change? The resurrection is a story that invites us into the change. Would you pray with me? Lord, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, they're not of the world, contrary to it. God, you have given us divine power to destroy strongholds. Lord, it is this power is different than the world. It is divine and it is resurrection power. And Lord, I pray that some strongholds could be let go of. Lord, I pray that Um, we would not be so focused on numerical growth and buildings and budget and stuff, Lord, but we would want and desire to see people be liberated and freed with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, let us not be sucked in. Let us learn from history and not be power grabbers, not trying to flex our muscle and make threats and take on causes that don't matter, that try to impose our way and others turn away. Lord, I pray that this movement, this vision of life, this love, Lord, would be, it would pervade Fondren Church. And for other believers, visitors today that represent other faith families, I pray it true there as well. Jesus, you are worldwide. And we celebrate your life today. And God, I pray over these people, everyone gathered, God, I pray for great mercy, for a new birth, for living hope. In you we pray. Amen. Christ is risen. I want you to rise today to your feet. We're going to end our service in prayer. We'd love to give you the opportunity to be prayed for uh, today. If there's a need in your life or anything that we can come around you today, would you give us that opportunity, a few of us, We'll be down front. We'd love the, the honor to come around you to pray for something in your life. Um, give us that honor. Let's all, let's all stand. Let's all sing. Let's honor Christ.